You think you're so great because you have that gas. Welcome back to The Greenhouse, uh, dear listeners. We're back with another segment in our movie magic series. Uh, me and Josh are discussing, finally, our long-awaited um, third historical epic of the year, uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. And I'm already ready to decimate the outline we had planned for this one. <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just get right into it. What, what did yeah, you think I mean- of the movie? You know, I, I think from, you know, everyone's favorite Bonapartist podcast here, um, I, you know, it, it, I'm really mixed on it. You know, it's it's kind of where I had my expectations were really tempered um, because I knew you liked it, but a family friend hated it. <laughs> uh, he told me uh, that I shouldn't even bother seeing it for the review. I should just open with this quote that Napoleon is Ridley Scott's Waterloo. <laughs> no, I, I personally wouldn't go that far. Um, but there's there's elements of this that I was like, okay, like some of it stands out where it's like, okay, like there's some stuff that I take maybe a little bit of um issue with. Um there's other parts where it's just kind of like, you know, it's I think the weird thing for me, like I guess to kind of like just as like a quick little like preview summary of my general thoughts and views of it is that I feel like it was it like of like our third historical epic um and kind of in general i haven't really seen uh, i was thinking this might be like my least favorite movie i've seen this year but i haven't really seen any bad ones so it's not like super low praise but i feel like of those historical epics it's the most shallow experience whereas i felt those were um a little bit more thought-provoking and whatnot this one kind of feels like a um a cinematic textbook with like kind of this weird romance subplot yeah, I think that's a that's a fair read and like that's probably been like the overall like field of assessment around this movie is you have people who either, you know, saw it as like a romp and had fun with it or people who were expecting something else and it's like this is kind of it's yeah, it's like a high high production value drama that is more style than it is substance and I think the the kind of take we have on napoleon here on the podcast as well as just like in a historical context right is that he is this like epoch defining uh historical character and that was weighing on me a bit when like with expectations for the movie and then as soon as those expectations were diffused in like probably the first 10 minutes i'm like okay Mm -hmm. i can just sit back and have fun with it yeah, and I, I think that was kind of it, it has that kind of like popcorn flick vibe to it, which yeah. I didn't get out of again, like we, the other ones we did this year, um, uh, Oppenheimer and uh, um, Goes of the Flower Moon. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely the most like you can sit back, turn your brain off, and like it's it. Someone described it as like a beer with the fellows movie more than anything else. Yeah, and uh, I, the other comparison I, I did on like the Discord was I was like, this is kind of you know like when I like I've you know I know it's the, the dorky perspective that I've been sort of bringing to films lately, right? But like you know like like the politics through film or like academic analysis one, I was like, this right. is the kind of one that like other than like the kind of gratuitous violence at times and the gore. I mean, the movie does open up with an execution, which. Um, I was like, you know, how can you say the movie's bad if it opens up with Marie Antoinette getting her head chopped off? Though she did have a little bit of a girl boss vibe when she was, you know, making her march there. Um, but it's it's kind of like, other than the gore, it feels like this is like 
what you could acceptably show like high school or middle school students for class, right? Like it's like the history is largely, you know, it's it's not very political in its analysis. There's a few kind of underlying suggestions, especially like near the end when it's like, oh, you know, three million people died because of uh, Napoleon, which I mean, I, I have a mixed uh, perspective on uh, that particular presentation and whatnot, but it, it didn't feel like it really had much of like a message other than like kind of like portraying Napoleon as like something of like a pseudo warrior incel, but you know, I think that's the kind of the, the main criticism that's been kind of raked over a lot of the stuff in this movie. Which is in, which is interesting too, because Ridley Scott didn't, or at least in the way he's going about it in the interviews, didn't set out to do a character piece on Napoleon. In in fact, this is like anything but that. It's kind yeah. of like Assassin's Creed, you know, shoehorning in a historical event in a cutscene, but that was basically the context of the movie as a whole. Yeah, and you, you know, I remember um when we were discussing a lot of our hype for this, I think it might have been during the Oppenheimer episode. It might have been off um off the, the show as well. I'm not hundred percent sure. It was, it was during we, the Oppenheimer episode, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like we had talked about how like, you know, Napoleon is like the case zero of like like great men of history. Like there's actually some validity to that framework because of like just his actual historical impact, right? There's, you know, you're hard pressed to think of um, too many other people. But this movie kind of took a pro, like, at times it felt less like he's like this great man shaping history, and just history is like shaping this man into its main character is kind of like the weird approach uh, that this movie felt at times. And I think a lot of it was kind of just like it's easy to sort of portray like your preconceptions and your like knowledge of Napoleon onto certain things. But like, as far as the movie itself was concerned, there's a lot of things where it like, just kind of like, you know, there's the scene where, um, you know, the people sent to arrest him instead join his coup attempt right after his exile. And it's just like it, you don't see why anyone is like particularly charmed by him. Right. And even like the love story, right. It starts out with like him being super awkward with uh, Josephine and she doesn't really seem all that into him. She takes a lover. And then like all of a sudden, like just snap, like they're in love, they're madly in love and, and whatnot, even though he still seems to suck at sex. Um, which I mean, obviously not saying that's like, you know, should determine your love life of how, you know, good your partner is. At, but it was a bizarre sex. focus of the movie. And it's like, yeah, it's uh, the thing about Napoleon and like probably with all of the historical adaptations that have taken the center stage in like this, this year's round of films, right? Mm-hmm. The question of how do you adapt historical events to the theatrical treatment um, is an active one in like the filmmaking process, right? And I think like of our three films, like they all go about it differently. Where it's like with Oppenheimer, they actually had like a in hindsight, this probably wasn't the take I had on the Oppenheimer episode, but it's the take I have now is that they were actually pretty close to like the truer historical narrative than the other two. And they were able yeah. to com- like create compelling drama from what is pretty at least in the academic way like it's accessible to um 
to get that information or that drama is palpable in certain reading of events or in this case you know they were following like uh kai bird's um american prometheus novel mm-hmm. so they were able to rely on you know like the narrative in that book with codes of the flower moon they're also relying on david grant's novel yeah. you know but as well as that um there was a lot of historical ambiguity in the in the record you know so a lot of the drama was to an extent fabricated it was consulted on with like you know real sources but mm-hmm. it was okay let's write this into a story and then adapt it to the screen because you can adapt drama to the screen that way with napoleon it gets funny because it's like you have a a person who sits within one of these very complex eras in in world history sits at this pivotal moment in like uh european geopolitics like like the continent was not the same before and after this guy lives and dies right um and this guy in his own life gets up to so much shit and Mm -hmm. has like a like 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 no one no two people have the same analysis of him even in like even among his contemporaries so like it, it it leaves like a very challenging question of how do you bring that to the screen and for Ridley Scott to basically say, fuck it, here's how here's my vibes based read of what went down after like looking at the Wikipedia page once <laughs> is yeah. a way to adapt it to film. And I guess it's like there was something about once I realized like, oh, they they're not taking this serious that to me just like I was able to turn off a switch and be like, I can just sit there and watch this. As yeah, like a, it, as like a just a dumb guy film almost, you know. Yeah, and I, and I said it, it wasn't supposed to Wikipedia read. Is it to me? It's like the textbook read. Like I mean, I remember like whenever I was like first exposed to like Napoleon in like the in like a a classroom, like a history class. Like it felt very much like it. Like I don't know if you had the same experience with a lot of like your early like history classes. Like it, to me, until like I hit like the AP history classes. All of my history classes were primarily focused on like battles and wars and stuff like that. Yeah, like the Keystone events. I think like for yeah, but, but like when I say Keystone, I mean like specifically like battles and wars. Like occasionally you get like you know hey like MLK or like the Civil Rights Movement, but not in a, a super deep take. And this kind of felt like that version of it, right? You don't really address like the non-battlefield prowess of Napoleon, other than his prowess or lack thereof as a lover. Uh, which, like, I, I understand, like, why there there would be an interest in, like, focusing on that. I just think that that take, and I know we mentioned on, like, the, the Gundam episode, um, that, like, you know, like, the idea of him being, like, awkward with women, that, that that might be, like, historically supported. But it's just so weird to, like, portray him, like, as, like, just, like, such an awkward guy, yet he's, like, charismatic enough to, you know, rewrite, like, the entire French system. Um, multiple times, um, like you don't understand like why he's like this. They're like, oh, he's like the French Caesar. It's like, okay, why? Um, and like I know why because of you know studying this historical figure, but I don't really know why as far as like how this movie is portraying the events because it is kind of just like this textbook version where it's like we list a string of you know battles and a couple other events and just throw that on your screen. Which is, I think, the 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 mischance, and I think probably why people are understandably frustrated with Ridley Scott's direction. And to be honest, I haven't engaged a lot of his work, but 
it's like okay if you want to take that juxtaposition of napoleon is this weird guy personally but has this like inordinate amount of power and influence and success to a certain extent and it backs comes back into his life as insecurity arrogance and all that if you're going to do a character study that's perfect you're in the right mix Mm -hmm. but he doesn't go down that route 100 percent. and the same thing with like the the battles the events like a lot of it is actually very beautifully shot beautifully scored um choreographed beautifully you know like the the coronation scene where like he um steals the he takes the the crown out of the pope's hand and like you know coron- coronates himself yeah that was like a painting brought to life moment right That's, and like sure. and, and some of those moments are like accurate in the way you're describing where it's like it's the tour guide version of history it's mm-hmm. like the quick recap of events as you're going through a museum and it's like it's just enough where someone can like you know uh, cross their T's and dot their I's and be like, yep, that happened, that happened. But then a lot of it like is also just like cherry picked for what like Ridley Scott thought would make a good movie. So that's that that is the overall take, right? Is that Napoleon the twenty twenty three film is a film unto itself. It doesn't really tell the real story of Napoleon Bonaparte. And if you know that going in you might have fun or you might not. But that is what the film is. Yeah, I think that's that that's fair. It's like kind of like the general like thing of it, right? That it's it's kind of that, you know, the tour guide version of history. And like I mean, like, you know, to be fair, like, you know, the, those scenes like when he takes the crown and stuff like that, they are beautiful, right? Like I think the mu- the movie is visually stunning, but it, that's yeah. kind of where it like, you know, it's like the the style over substance approach is kind of where it puts it more in this like kind of like popcorn flick tier, right? But like, yeah, I mean, the visuals were fantastic. Yeah, and I think like it it prompted me to look at like other film depictions of Napoleon, right? And we come back to basically two, uh, there's like probably fifty seven depictions of Napoleon in film or more. I'm not sure, but two of the ones that stand out in everyone's canon, at least is the 1927 film Napoleon as seen by Abel Gantz, which Mm. is like, it's a six hour long ass silent movie (laughs) broken up into six six hours. Silent movie. Six hour silent film. It tries to do like a weird thing. That's like novel for the time where it tries to like project the film into three separate screens. So, like, one's red, one's white, one's, like, blue. Huh. And it, like, projects the French flag or whatever. But then it's also, like, the scope of the film is is pretty huge, where it's, like, um, it starts with him, you know, as a Corsican noble, going to the military academy, you know, uh, participating in the, rev- in the revolution, getting his way up, and then, you know, his way to the... To becoming the emperor and then i think the movie ends at waterloo i'm not sure i'm really not sure but it's it's one of those reads that like is a lot broader in scope but is also sympathetic to napoleon as this like french national hero he's presented mm-hmm. as this noble figure in that movie and then the other one that everyone talks about is uh 
I forget what year Waterloo. this was. At. Yeah, Waterloo, which is like a um I think it was a joint Italian Soviet production and it was like um 1970. 1970. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was um Basically, like the event, the the third act of this film was the entirety of Waterloo, and from what I understand, like it served as like the inspiration for all the battles in like the Lord of the Rings films. Huh. So, like, those are the two that are big and influential. And like, if we're doing like a scene by scene comparison, you know that one scene in this movie where Napoleon, you know, he comes back from his first exile. And he shows up, you know, and confronts all the troops. And he gives this, like, very, like, weak, like, mealy mouth speech. But everyone is like, fuck it, he's back. Yeah, yeah, and that, was, that was what I was talking about, where I was like, that scene just kind of felt like it, it, it hit flat in this one. And that's the thing. So in Waterloo, like, the same scene with, like, worse, you know, cinema, uh, cinema technology. Sure. Um has him deliver the same speech so much more powerfully and there's this like tension built because there's a guy like trying to draw a gun on him so it zooms in on the gun then napoleon's eyes and then the gunman like faints and it like zooms in on the guy fainting and then everyone's like fuck it napoleon's back so mm-hmm. it's like you kind of have to go in- i guess i guess i don't know our, our outline's all over the place but one thing that we keep coming back to in discussions in Napoleonic history, right, is that a person's opinion or depiction of Napoleon says a little bit more about them than it does about Napoleon himself. So where does that place us as, like, you know, reviewers of this film and observers of Napoleonic history, but also, like, what does this say about past adaptations and then this newest round sure yeah and i think you know kind of the other thing with that right is that you know so much of like you know even like the like part of like the big thing with historical analysis of them and even analysis by his contemporaries right is it's it's politically charged right you know that he was this incredibly divisive figure in his own time because he sort of you know just or was the ma- the first real major threat to you know the uh the monarchists uh systems um of the era right even even when he becomes sort of you know one of them uh, when he's crowned emperor right it's it's a different breed right they never take him uh seriously as one right the film kind of depicts that a little bit um that a lot of them like you know the uh, the czar which I, did the film get the wrong czar no, they got the right czar. They just they made him a twink, and that was confusing. Okay, because I thought they gave him like the wrong name, but um, and, and I mean he's that's kind of another thing too, where I was like, that's like one of those historical figures where everyone's like, oh, like what a giga chad for like burning down Moscow. It's like, I mean, yeah, it did ultimately cost well, the French because they kept going on, but like burning your capital city is kind of like pretty weak move it's it's also like the thing they don't get into with that czar is like he kind of conspired with his court to kill his dad yeah and he was a very like shifty character um like uh he would basically try to like be a progressive reformer but also was like a you know very like very arch conservative adherent of the orthodox church so he was always playing this weird game of like 
do I want to be this reformer like Napoleon, but do I want to also protect the existing order? And then Russia was going back and forth on being Anglophilic and not, and England to the, you know, they're, I don't know. I'm relying a lot on Age of Napoleon, which was a, it's a great history podcast. I've shouted it out so many times on this show, but like, that is the reason why I have a whole scaring uh, <laughs> level of knowledge on the Napoleonic sure. era. Um, but yeah, it's it's just the kind of thing where it's like a lot of the people that were relegated to side roles in this movie were far more interesting in their in their full right. Like even um, the one battle where they beat the Austrians and like the one austrian dude they bring in is just this kind of like bumbling german guy <laughs> wasn't it supposed to be the king of austria i think it's it was either the king or his brother i don't i don't remember yeah um i, I think it was supposed to be francis uh emperor francis but I, I could be wrong but yeah like there's yeah like a lot of like the historical characters even like some of the french ones it's like they're kind of like there for like a cup of coffee and like you know there's that one scene with um crap who is it the uh the french foreign minister who encourages napoleon to um you know become emperor basically um and like he's there like one more time but he's like you know he ta- he has like these quotes where he's like oh like you know this is like you know napoleon's like the greatest leader in history and it's like you know again it's like the film sort of like telling not showing that side of him yeah, and it's like Talleyrand in that's in that particular case, right, is like one of Napoleon's greatest like uh political patrons, you know? Mm-hmm. So you could have had him like doing all manners of like how, how do I how do I put this? There's so many angles you can pick to depict Napoleon. I think if you really wanted this to be like a great popcorn flick, just having it be like a bromance of like Napoleon and all the marshals would have probably been like easiest dudes rock win of 2023 yeah um hell if you wanted to really like do like a political um film having it be like uh the directory uh Talleyrand, napoleon and his brother you know getting up to like all manners of like scheming that's another route you could take and i think is an interesting one mm-hmm. a really good one that no one has done and i would probably need the budget to do uh have the Bonaparte family set up like a crime family and make a mob <laughs> film about the Bonapartes. I think that would be brilliant. Yeah, like they kind of are. And like you see some elements of it, right? With like, you know, his brother um, kind of being like a major p- a part of his rise. But his brother's like such a like minor character in this movie that like you kind of, it, it, it's easy to sort of overlook that. But you're right. Like it, there is kind of that mob boss, like element to it yeah it's like i don't it's like again if abel gantz had to take five hours in a silent film to get that scope or waterloo had to pick like a very specific arc of events i think this film also does suffer from being a bit too broad in its scope and even then they cut a lot out like they cut a lot about napoleon's origin story out i mean you have to when like (laughs) when you're covering this broad of a period exactly yeah um, I, I did enjoy, like, speaking of some characters, this was a really minor character again in the movie, but I did, I was looking at the cast list, because I had, I had wondered if that's who it was. Uh, I did like that they did have, um, uh, 
uh, Thomas Alexander Dumas uh, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very briefly. So, like, for those who aren't familiar, that's uh, Alexander Dumas, like, the author of, like, Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers. Uh, he was, you know, one of Napoleon's generals who does get, like, exiled uh, by Napoleon as well. Um, but uh, it was kind of nice to see him make his brief appearance in the movie though i i have a suspicion it might not have been historically accurate the timing of it but you know it is what it is i mean that that's another weird risk the movie takes that i think is good i th- i think it's okay to like promote diversity in film but i think in sure. this case what they had was like a real chance to present like of course there were black people in revolutionary france like yeah. you had like the the aftermath of the slave trade you had you know colonial connections to haiti as well as other holdings mm-hmm. in africa and the caribbean so you know for josephine to have like um like a mixed race um uh lady person in working, yeah lady in waiting or like for uh thomas dumas to like be a marshal and was like a a real like flamboyant character in his own right you know yeah uh, like, like actually, like a character worth like I'm um, having a movie and whatnot. Like he, was, if anyone needs a movie, it's him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> As like again, like I guess he was just there to like you know, uh, do some like padding he, by numbers because because like, there, yeah. there were so many of the marshals. Like if you know what the marshals look like, they're all mm-hmm. there. You can pick them all out by like their facial hair or whatever. <laughs> but like if they don't they don't spell it out they don't spell out why these right. guys are important yeah and it's like it's just there it's just like oh it's like a black dude arresting a guy it's like right you know it, 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 it's like it's because i was like is that what that that would have to be him right and it's like it is I'm like oh that's cool but like you know they don't they don't really draw a touch to it it's like it's, it's like it's really cool you put him in you could have like made yeah. him a real like secondary character if you wanted right but, but it's that's the other thing too right where it's like the film has no real analysis of like uh why the French Revolution had to happen. It doesn't even say if it was good or bad. I Hell, they could have said it was bad if they wanted to, you know? Like kind of got like, like I got the sense that and you know, it kind of reminded me because I've um my semester's wrapped up for the year, right? And uh, mm-hmm. there we had some uh, we end up with the, these uh, these class debates, and there was I, I kind of got this impression from some of my students that they kind of masked their like approach to answering certain questions, and I kind of got that at the very beginning. You have that thing where like it it's like he he doesn't want to totally say the French Revolution was bad, but like kind of says it was bad, right? Where it was like some I can't remember what the exact verbiage is, but it's like something about like the French were like tricked into revolution and then brought into like more like spoil by it and then they you know the history kind of proceeds from there but that was like the closest it really came to like making any type of statement about the revolution as i said it kind of felt like i want to say it's bad but i don't want to like totally like burn that bridge yeah and it's like by doing something like that you actually close the door to say something if that that's how i view that kind of um masking uh your mm-hmm. your real intentions in, a, in whether it's like um directly answering a question or how you show it in your work right and i think like it just it, it i i want to really 
get a clear answer from Ridley Scott, but he's not going to give anyone one. So that's where we're at, right? Because people were did- asking me, that's his answer. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, so it's it's definitely anti-French to some extent. It's anti, like, you know, French Revolution to some degree, maybe. It's not exactly pro-English either. Like, the Duke of Wellington looks absolutely inbred in that last act. <laughs> Like it doesn't it doesn't make me feel better about the British. It just kind of like it seems like a real cynical like fuck the French, but I, I don't like us either. Well, and you really oh, and go you ahead, have go that you have that scene with like the uh, the French uh, like cadets or whatever they were, where they seem way more interested in Napoleon, and he seems to have way more respect for him than the Duke of Wellington does. Right. So it's like yeah, it's just kind of like yeah, like this guy's not exactly you know a, a, a based either. So right, right. Um, I'm just, I think like the thing about the movie is that you, for me, at least like it was the romp, like getting to see something that was just like visually stunning Yeah, is definitely fun. But then like when you sit back and you, you know, everything, you know, you're like this, it, it misses the, the, the actual fun of Napoleonic history, which is that there were so many points at which the world was changed. And there were so many like hinge points on like where history could have changed in in a thousand other ways too, and this film just takes like a real like disinterest in like the 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 potential. It takes a yeah. real disinterest in like um, the significance of some of those events, and I think it's just like you kind of see that in like the the way the Egyptian um, arc is presented as this like side quest for napoleon he's urgently trying to get out of when in in reality oh go go, go ahead i was gonna say in general he's portrayed as like deeply uninterested in in anything other than josephine right like it's like oh man it sucks that i'm here and not with josephine same with like the russia arc right is it's like the and it's like it's like that weird implication that like this is a guy who like according to this film's version is just dictated by like his desire for his like wife right like where it's like oh like i'm going to like try to speed run this russia campaign right rather than retreat to poland i have to get back to my wife so i'm going to just make these horrible tactical mistakes and whatnot um and, and like all that stuff and it, it, it's just it's just weird like it, it's you know like i mean if you want like a, a story about like historical figures that are like you know kind of you know crippled by their like you know wants and desires just make like a movie about world war one and how like half of the monarchs are just like addicted to cocaine right like you know these national leaders are just like you know they're you know they can't get enough of this stuff and like these are the people who are like leading people to their deaths uh for no real discernible reason just because like you know one dude one royal gets shot and like that's kind of the thing where you're like you're hinting at like with like you know some of the potential of like you know like how history is being changed right is like you know the duke of wellington when he's like sort of rallying the alliance is like oh we gotta like you know fight this like ill-mannered pig napoleon right it's like no there's like they have to kind of like you know their victory there is sort of to justify like the continuation of like the justify their own existence right like 
Napoleon is sort of this threat to like the divine right of kings that has been sort of holding like this monarchist monarchist system together across you know the entirety of Europe at that point. Like, you know, there's there's a little bit here that's just not like that's really meaningful. That's just not really being discussed. Yeah, and it's like it the 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 relationship with Josephine is almost like um like a stand-in for something else. Like if you try to just Freudian, it's Freudian to a certain extent, right? Like the weird like neighing when he's like in the mood. (laughs) I like I again like the the movie was so unintentionally funny that like it it probably like helped me enjoy it of like how ridiculous they were. Destiny has brought me to this lamb shop. (laughs) I I think that's that's the thing, right? Is like the thing is is that if you make a man pathetic in a film it creates automatic drama, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it, it's like you, they backdoor themselves into like ex- excellent drama with this one. And Joaquin Phoenix was just eating it up. Okay. Like he, he was going dummy mode on some of this stuff. Like <laughs> the unnecessary horniness, the way, like when he was like, you know, when it was time to copulate, he was like three pumps in and out. Um, yeah. just like just yelling at random people for like dumb shit all the time, like like the British ambassador like you know says says no to him, and he just just out of out of out of the blue. You think you're so great because you have boats? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, was, I was howling, dog. I was howling, yeah, and that's what I'm getting at. Where it's like, how do you like like the when the film when this is the depiction of Napoleon, like you can't buy that like any of these like like why would he be chosen to be like the emperor of france and whatnot like none of it makes because it doesn't feel like the film doesn't portray him as like a man of any particular agency but the thing is is like he kind of was like that and the truth is is like he was all those things like he's this brilliant guy who's also arrogant and is also just like like this type a asshole like there, there's this like uh, depiction of like when they were doing the coup in the French Senate, like he has a temper tantrum and starts calling himself the god of war and gets mad that people aren't listening to him. Mm-hmm. And like that was a real thing that like his brother had to step in and be like, listen, listen, we're gonna get this sorted. My brother's just having a tantrum, okay? And like they're able to like pull themselves out of that like conundrum. Um. And but it's it's the thing where it's like they they make the caricature or they make this like uh they make the Grinch for us to look at but then but then like you know a, uh, what we expect from films is like then it studies like how that arrogance leads to downfall instead of just like hey look at this oaf yeah and it, and it's like that like that stuff might have been part of his his like historical real character but like that wasn't all there was. And the film exactly. doesn't really give you much else other than that, right? You get a few moments like where it's just like, oh, yes, yeah, like with the troops who were sent to arrest him and he, they decide to join his coup instead. Like that stuff is like, you know, you get that element of a, a little bit, but you don't understand like, okay, like why would people like follow this dude? He's just kind of like this like sex crazed oaf. Um, especially when it's like, you know, as you said, his speech is pretty like, you know, kind of like, yeah, it's whatever. But like, Waterloo portrays it in this much more dramatic sense. Um, and it's like, yeah, you don't like it's like I, I'm sure there was elements of this that are, you know, rooted in like his actual personality, but you only see the most pathetic parts about him. 
Yeah, it's like, I, I don't know. It's. I think I before I was like uh, less re- or I was I was reticent to to criticize Ridley Scott directly, but now that I think about it, I'm like, listen, Joaquin Phoenix saved this film by having a, a good performance. Otherwise, anybody else, this would have been a yeah. nightmare. And that's I, yeah, not to 100%. say that. To be fair, like everybody did a good did a good performance. Like the performances saved the film. The visual style is sun- is stunning. Um, the scope. His performance was what actually mattered, right? Like, if yeah. if if he if you had like a dud as Napoleon and like everyone else was like, because let's face, it, other than like Josephine, most of the other characters aren't really there that long. They don't do that much, but they're performed well for what you know the film calls on them to do. Yeah, and it just it just kind of feels like button mashing at a point where it's like, I want <laughs> I want to make a a historical epic, but I want the lead to be like the embodiment of like male pettiness pathetic like <laughs> pathetic shit and just like just arrogance sure. uh, but i also want him to look heroic in like his moments and like there's there's probably a way to render that artistically like if that's who you think napoleon was fine you can actually do that and depict it well but like you have to actually get us from point a to point b you can't just like have point B in your head and then expect everyone to be with it. And that's that, that I think that's where like Ridley Scott made a major mistake in this film that again, the cast pulled him out of like Vanessa Kirby did an amazing job as Josephine, mm-hmm. all the supporting actors, brilliant Joaquin, brilliant. Um, but like, like we've been saying, and this is just the repeat theme in our analysis of the film. It seems it's like, it is all style over substance. And it's like, I don't see the film, even in its depiction of historical events, as like wildly inaccurate. But, you know, it, they took that thing of like, we have to adapt history. And it's mm-hmm. an incredibly complex period. It's an incredibly complex life that Napoleon had. But instead of creating events out of whole cloth, they do this like omission and selection of facts that doesn't even create an advantageous narrative. So, like, like I mentioned, like you know, the the key moments in conflicts, the the politics are being left yeah. out. The bromance with the marshals, the bromance with the Tsar would have been better as a as a plot point too, for that matter. You know, it, it, like these are events that make him likable in 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 uh in objectively academic retellings of history, right? Mm-hmm. You have events like the Polish brigades, you know, where like uh there was a whole there's a whole historical plot of like. Poland wanted Napoleon to like patronize them so they could like be free and then like become a free state in their own right. You know, you had the entire abject failure of um, Napoleon to see the light with uh, with Haitian independence Mm -hmm. and for, you know, like him to to make the again like this is this is probably like the thing that prevents napoleon from being a full hero in my mind is like he put two saint louverture in, in in shackles yeah and that doesn't even get brought up um the prussians are also like they they just don't exist in this movie well, until the very water, end yeah. yeah for the waterloo and then it's like we're, we only know they're prussian because one guy shows up in an iron cross well and they say they're prussian but you know 
yeah, it's a, yeah, but that's the thing. They don't even tell you why the the Prussians and Austrians exist separately. Like they they don't even get into it. You know. Yeah, it's kind of, and that's kind of a, a thing with this period too, where it's like it's hard to portray a lot of this stuff because like. Unless you're a European historian, like, and I don't necessarily mean like an academic, like a purely academic one, right? If you're like someone who just, you know, studies it as like a hobby, unless you are one, it's kind of hard to follow, you know, the battle lines and like all these different like national entities, right? And like, and, and, and to be fair, like the, the concept of like a nation state is still like pretty fluid at this time um in some ways uh especially for places like you know i mean like finland and holland get mentioned a few times as like this territory that like you know falls back and forth between the french and other um you know other uh countries and whatnot but um you know it, it's it's hard to follow that and i get that it's hard to like that makes it harder to like depict in a movie per se but yeah it's like there's there's a lot going on here that that feels maybe more important and, and part of me I, I wonder if you know again it's, it's like you know the the movie's message to me is largely unclear um like i don't know what the like like you know the other ones that we saw like i think that there was a, a clear like you know message that they were trying to deliver right you know with oppenheimer it's sort of like the complications of someone who's you know interested in like the sake of scientific achievement and whatnot but is rackled with guilt for um, you know, creating a weapon of mass destruction. Um, you know, he sees sort of the, the blood on his hands and whatnot, and you sort of, you know, it, it doesn't force you to feel a particular way about him, but you can see the nuances of that character. Uh, Kills the Flower Moon is sort of depicting this kind of, um, you know, this historically, I, I think, um, underappreciated uh, phenomenon, right? And it's sort of, you know, it has uh, different things to tell you about these different people, but it's like, it's telling you a story about, like, the oppression of the Osage people who are, you know, sort of blessed with, you know, the the wealth that comes of oil, but cursed with that same wealth, right? Because of right. their desire. Whereas here, I'm not sure what it's trying to say about the age of Napoleon and whatnot. Like, there, there's that little, like, bit at the end where it talks about, like, Oh, Napoleon led such and such many battles, and this many people died, which kind of rubbed me a little bit of a like six million Jews died in the Holocaust type thing. Uh, and I know that, like, I, I think I, I read on the Wikipedia some people criticized the portrayal of Napoleon as a proto Hitler. That was really the only extent that I got the like proto Hitler thing. Um, but again, it just kind of comes at the end and feels out of place with the rest of this movie. And I think again, like portraying like battlefield deaths as like entirely on his feet is like kind of ridiculous when it's like Europe is so like just riddled with war leading into this anyways that like it seems really unfair to like place it entirely on him uh and frankly like if he's you know oh well he like led them on the battlefield unlike these other kings who like you know sat on you know on their thrones I'm, like frankly you know not to be like you know Objectively weird, but like that's honestly more based, right? Because he at least had some level of skin in the game, right? He at least participated in these things, and that's kind of, you know, the, and, and you know, like some of the more unflattering historical depictions of him, right, have always been like kind of this aversion of the fact that he was like plain looking and stuff like that, right? The fact that he was this everyman who had ascended to power. And it kind of feels like, you know, like why are we uniquely blaming him for like stuff like that i don't know but like it's other than that i don't think the film really had like a concrete message or anything behind it and that's probably something to do with like 
there is like a a void at the public conception of what history is and what it means to people. So like mm-hmm. this just this just came as like a thought like while you while you were talking like at the high school level like I know we we both took AP history to some extent. Did you take AP World or AP Euro by chance? Uh World. Okay, my school did something weird where they told us we were taking World and then they said psych you're taking AP Euro. To be but fair Ours largely did that too because what they decided because they they created it my senior year, uh, and I had registered for both, but they they determined they were just going to do one, so they just merged it into World, um, and then they would alternate it. But obviously, I was a senior, so no Euro for me. <laughs> okay, and then in the World um, curriculum, like you you guys actually covered like the World itself. It wasn't displayed on any one continent in particular or was it no not really um there was a surprise like early on there was like a surprising amount of like indian stuff like okay native like they're not natives but like you know your your people indians <laughs> so, you know, to the indian there. subcontinent the indian yes, subcontinent. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like it, it kind of, it, it would sort of tour around. Like we did a lot, you know, and that kind of felt out of place because like, then like we jumped to like really early, like middle Eastern, um, like the, the Sumerians and stuff like that. Um, and a little bit on like, you know, South America as well with, you know, the Aztecs, uh, Incas, the Mayans, all that stuff. Um, so it kind of, you know, we, we hopped around. Yeah. So like with when I took like AP Euro, like that was, that was the first thing is like, sur- like surprise, you're not taking world, you're taking European history. We're starting right at the black plague. Like that's where, that's where they started <laughs> for European history. Okay. And it's like, the thing is, is like, you know, European history is, is like such a blank space for like the American public consciousness which is a shame or at least like it's something that's like a major like blind spot because America kind of just picks up where Europe left off in the 1700s you know I'm not not that's not probably not like the most accurate way to say that but it, it's like you inherited all of that but you don't even understand what that is you know and like and it's an AP class it's not really like the greatest look at all this but like it's a better look than what you would otherwise be getting at that level. Right. And it's like, it's like, you know, to understand what feudalism was as this like thing that is, is describably way worse than the system you have today for all its faults that the present system is an adaptation to like something that was way worse, like a class of people that are just like born to like Lord over you. It's yeah. unthinkable today. It's something that no one thinks about anymore. Well, right? and, and and real quick, I wanted to say that too because like this movie made me think of it as well. The other thing that's really unthinkable about is the willingness for like the Everman to die on behalf of these people. Right? These battles are brutal and like they there's like you don't really see desertion uh in this movie. Everyone's committed to like just walking that, you know, that line where you're almost certainly going to get shot if you're in front. Right. And that's and that's the thing, right? Because like the the biggest like thing I, I've learned in European history, and this is like coming as someone who like didn't care for anything in the class up until Napoleon showed up and then it got interesting. 
mm-hmm. is like nationalism is this like thing that doesn't really exist in the in the common person's mind until about the Napoleonic era, you know? Like that's this yeah. is like when we see like the burgeoning of of nationalist like sentiments and we kind of see them as this tool one like you know to maintain conservative orders but also to like um facilitate certain at that time progressive struggles you know and you're transitioning from this key moment where armies are basically staffed by like people serving penal sentences people who had nowhere else to go guys who were on the lamb and said fuck it might as well serve and you have warfare as this like perennial seasonal activity basically mm-hmm. um being tr- like you know transformed into a real professional occupation you know um there's a professionalization of the military class there is this real um development of war as a scientific practice in the napoleonic era and napoleon is like coming into being a soldier at the time of this transition so like he's actually going to a military academy he's studying artillery which at the time is cutting edge military hardware and he's coming into the you know political scene as a jacobin as like at that time a left-wing you know position Mm -hmm. And he comes out of this, like, um, radical Corsican tradition of, like, the the Corsican rebellion against the the French. The French, yeah. And he's influenced by, like, the Corsican rebel um, Pasquale Pauli, right? So Napoleon is this, like, real um, new beast clawing um, at the old powers of Europe. And feudalism really takes a decline in this era. You really see, and what Napoleon offers the world, and this is why I keep saying he invented liberalism. It's like it's it's mostly a joke, but what I really mean by that is like the Enlightenment is emerging at the time when the bourgeoisie, as we're starting to conceive of it, becomes a thing. White collar professionals, the middle class, the new money. Yeah. You know, that's trying to claw for its existence in the age of feudalism, in the age of inherited titles, is the real social base for, like, uh, the Enlightenment and then later, like, um, Enlightenment revolutions, the French Revolution, and then in our case, the one that we inherit, uh, the American Revolution is, is mm-hmm. like, it's the same guys to a certain extent, right? Yeah. So... Napoleon is like taking that concept forward and like tr- like you know doing this like weird thing of like yes consolidating power for himself yes taking a- the regressive title of emperor but initiating a social and legal order that we recognize closer to ours today mm-hmm. than like you know the past regimes before and you see that in like you know this focus on like the other uh, burgeoning middle class on professionalization on meritocracy you know the napoleonic legal code and education um this is a controversial one even like you know in the historical retelling but it's like napoleon like saying hey we kind of don't have to be anti-semitic anymore let's integrate you know jewish people into our civil services and government right mhm 
that's like a progressive force in like a feudal reactionary society you know so like well and i think that's the thing too um you know and i think all this is beautifully put um you know so much of like this progressive reform like i get that you know nowadays right this would still this would probably come across as maybe outright conservative uh in terms of the actual positions but like to the the leap forward that's being had here, and even that, I don't think it would be seen as like that conservative today. Um, but like you know, the, the leap forward that's being had here is so significant that it's like you know, it's kind of hard to understand in that modern context because, like, like you said, the system is is so different. Exactly, and I think that's what this movie is. You know, it's like us looking back at a beautiful reconstruction of the past with no real understanding of what was going on in the past and a very sublimated, vague approximation of our biases in the present, you know, that as we look back on the past. Sure. It's not a real retelling. It's not a real analysis. It's not even a translation to us in the present. I think the uh, advantage, though, is that it lets us have these, these conversations. Right, exactly. like, and and you know, I, I I question just how much it's really like spurring these, right? Just because, of, like, again, it's sort of like it's not that much, right? But like, to people who are more interested in it, right, it does create the space for these conversations, right? Because you know, Napoleon is in, right? You know, you see him, you know, in sort of this this spotlight uh, in our moment, and we can sort of look back and and reflect a bit more, um, a lot more, frankly, than the movie did. Uh, but it does at least provide. Um, the excuse to have this conversation if nothing else exactly exactly i think if anything um the silver lining is that this is a gateway drug into more people learning about napoleonic history yeah and and hopefully people take that and maybe you know venture out into dialectical materialism that's just me <laughs> but i think i think yeah it's just you know to to have a chance to maybe nerd out about Napoleonic history is 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 a great silver lining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's certainly there's certainly worse that could happen. <laughs> okay, I guess um, we we really ran the gamut. I guess what 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 were probably like um, best moments in the film for, uh, by your read? Oh, um, gosh, I I think um. The uh, it was the opening battle of Toussaint, right? It was the uh, of Toulon, 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 yeah, yeah Toulon. Um, I thought that was pretty good, right? You get you got this, uh, you get to see him, uh, kind of in his element a bit, um, you know, and like sort of you know, the way artillery plays a major role there as well, um, which you know makes sense considering his, his prior role. I thought that was pretty good. Um, there's there's um some other I, I don't know i mean there's like like little moments but i think that was probably like in terms of like an extended scene i think that was probably um the best uh i mean the battle in austria was was cool i know or the battle of uh oster uh Austerlitz, Austerlitz, uh, yeah, Austerlitz. Yeah. um I, that was that was cool i know that um some historians have issues with uh i think it was the the ice or whatever wasn't actually like part of the battle or whatever. That was always kind of like this historical myth, but I, it makes for a cool visual, right? Um, if nothing else. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How about you? Yeah, I, th 
I think for sure the battles are like the major selling point of yeah. the. I think by virtue of what I'm interested in is like Napoleonic politics. So I think like the coronation is yeah. probably like one of my favorite scenes overall. But that's even fair. I didn't that, think about that one. I mean, that's the thing that this movie was doing way too much. I think like um, the sequence too, where like he's arresting all the old members of the directory and sending the marshals out to do it was also like brilliantly done. But I think like, yeah, with the, with the coronation, it's the same problem where you there's know, too much the, div- context divorced from it. There's too much, con- way too much context divorced from it. It's like, the fact that he didn't really want to do the coronation, but like Talleyrand was like, okay, we got to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that like the Pope didn't want to be there. And like, basically as soon as Napoleon took the crown out of his hands, the Pope was like, oh, fuck this. I'm walking out. They arrest the Pope at some, at, at, like that doesn't happen in the movie, but the Pope gets arrested by Napoleon. <laughs> right. There's like a bunch of like crazy shit that <laughs> you could probably make a, <laughs> You could make a movie off of like singular events. That's For how, sure, that's how yeah. deep this this runs, right? Which is uh, like the thing. It's like you really have to kind of pick and choose a bit more when you do something on like Napoleon. And I I, I don't think the movie was I, I think discerning enough with that. I think like you kind of have to concede that like you can't depict everything. And like I, I think that this like they, he tried to cover way too broad of a period to do that. Yeah, it's you kind of have to do like a a mini series or like a full fledged yeah. TV series to cover everything in detail. Um, and then even with the film, I think like they did like cut out the 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 origins. They cut out several several events. Um, in the in the in the film itself, they jumped the timeline a bit. Um. And it's still too broad. Like you're still yeah. starting from like when he is just about to get into power, and then when he is thoroughly um, exiled, mm-hmm. which is a wide window. It's 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 huge. Yeah, I'd say I'd say like least favorite had to be. Um... I'm trying to think like what what was what was like an absolute this is this did not need to be in the movie for you um some of the sex scenes i uh, kind of stood out as that like we're maybe like more so that like because it, it feels like okay you portray him as like especially like like the initial one right and then like juxtaposed it was funny one lo- yeah but like when it's when it happens and then it's immediately juxtaposed by like her taking a lover and it's like okay so like this guy's a cuck but then, like, all of a sudden, like, they, like, just by magic develop, like, this, like, heartfelt relate, like, this meaningful relationship just felt super weird when it seemed like she had, like, no interest in him other than, like, societal expectations of, like, taking a husband or whatever. Right. And it's like they did have a complicated relationship. And yes, she did cheat on him with that guy. But it's like Napoleon was infamous for, like, cheating in return and had his own stories you know yeah like he had uh like i they 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 mentioned like the one um child that he bastards in the movie for like their experiment or whatever which i don't know if that how accurate that was necessarily 
Um, but I mean, he has like another, at least one other bastard child that like we know of historically. And like, I also think too, like his family is like, like his, his children and like his, uh, particularly like his, um, his brother's children actually, um, are pretty relevant in like French history too. Um, no, they even they even show the stepson he had with Josephine, right? He was like, "Can you get my sword back for me?" Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> no, I think that he, I think, he just <laughs> that kid got a job. As far as I'm sh- uh, concerned, he got like a cabinet post or, or like some like noble title got passed to him. So yeah, it's it, it, it's it's like it's the same problem as like remember in um, the final season of Game of Thrones. George mm-hmm. R. R. Martin allegedly told uh, D&D that, listen, here's the broad strokes of the plot that I can think of. Take like six seasons to fill it out. Twelve seasons <laughs> if you need to. Just, just right. pad this shit out. And like, that's the whole point is like, your, your story yeah. beats can be whatever. Your story can go nowhere. It's fine. But you have to tell us how you get from point A to point B. And when you do it in like the shortest path possible... You mm-hmm. fuck up really bad. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's just like a, a, a thing that gets baked into this movie is just the, the scope is too broad. I think like I also heard that like the, the sex scenes were a bit much where it's like it was funny the first time, second and third time. What are we doing? Yeah. Well, especially like if you're going to like show them later, like, I mean, I, again, I was just said it's not essential that you're like, you know, amazing at sex to like, you know, win over your lover, but like it, at least portray him as like improving or something. Like, <laughs> I think, I think it, was just, it was just like, it's funny to watch this guy have fail sex. Okay, I get it. But like, that that's the whole point of like, if you're not going to do a character study and just have him be pathetic the whole movie, we've, we've all seen the room. Yeah. We've seen right. what a film like that looks like. It's <laughs> it, it doesn't hold up, you know. You got to do something. You got to Yeah. It has to mean something. Otherwise like the the audience is like what what's going on here? And it's fine. I laughed at all of it. You know, I thought it was like sure. I thought it was funny to see like um a guy like, you know, be pathetic and have this like real insecurity of like I have all the success in all the areas of my life, but I can't get this person's attention or like um, admiration and it pisses me off. But then that usually goes into like, in most times it's like this character study of how this guy's a narcissist. This guy is, you know, turns everything to shit. Mm -hmm. Like the Sopranos did that beautifully, but they do it over like 10 seasons of like every time he's cheating on his wife, it's always with a woman who wants nothing to do with him. You know, yeah. like it's yeah. shit like that. It's shit like that. So, I think for sure those scenes were pretty bad. I'd say the one that probably really did it for me was um, probably when he was coming back to lead the army for Waterloo. Like, it really did not have the same weight as the scene from Waterloo. Like no. I saw that from yeah. I saw that scene before I saw this movie, and then to like have it just like do this really flat delivery, and the rest of the troops would be like, "Fuck it, we're in," you know. I, yeah. I kind of like leaned over to Sky, and I'm like, "Man, the dick riding is crazy." And like that's the <laughs> only way you can describe like the way they're ready to yeah. ride for him. But yeah, I think I think you know 
I will say it. Ridley Scott did not understand what made this era interesting. He doesn't. He doesn't understand yeah. what makes Napoleon interesting. But he knew, like, he needed to get his name on a Napoleon movie. Yeah, I think that's what that was it, right? I mean, like, I think you know, again, like when it comes to like, oh, like the battle scenes were pretty good and stuff like that. Um, and the coronation was was also very good. I kind of forgot about that. Uh, but like the battle scenes and even a coronation, right? You could you could make a million movies about other people that you could have gotten, you know, that for or stuff like that, right? But like having Napoleon as your headliner does come with a certain cachet. Yeah, and it's like that's the thing is you know, getting to put. Um, I made a Napoleon movie and it made this much on your resume is always like a feather in the director's cap, but just because you made like a fun romp doesn't mean you missed out on the potential to really do something impactful. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's just the bottom line with this, with this, with this movie, right? Is like it had the potential to be something else. But it's fun for what it is, so long as you know what it is you're getting into. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a good summation. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think we've talked Napoleonic history to, to death at this point. What else have we missed? I did want to share these two quotes. Um these are from the age of Napoleon podcast website. And it's like, it was just to juxtapose like how no one fucking has a consensus on how they view Napoleon. <laughs> so this is from goats. This is the first quote. Napoleon's life was the stride of a demigod from battle to battle and from victory to victory. It might well be said of him that he was found in a state of continual enlightenment. On this account, his destiny was more brilliant than any the world had ever seen before him, or perhaps will ever see after him. The next is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Napoleon was thoroughly unscrupulous. He would steal, slander, assassinate, drown, and poison as his interest dictated. <laughs> he had no generosity, but mere vulgar hatred. He was intensely selfish. He was perfidious. He cheated at cards. <laughs> I, I mean, I like how the pettiness of that that quote too. Like, it's just he cheated at cards. Like, who cares, <laughs> right? Like, you know, <laughs> like at least like you know the, the proto Hitler narrative. At least you know you know that alleges some real crimes and, and you know against humanity and whatnot. This is just like man, like. I mean that is I mean that is kind of like basically like that quote from the Duke of Wellington when they're like rallying the uh the coalition against Napoleon, right? It's just like, you know, unscrupulous, you know, fuck him. I think that's that's another thing too is like the the history of like French and British conflict is probably a lot more harshly felt in both Britain and, and France. So like Yeah. That probably describes like a little bit of the acrimony in some people's responses to this film, but right. like it, in an American sense, like we kind of don't even see them as like competing powers, you know, like in the, in the average American imagination or even like among history buffs, right? Like no one's thinking about how much Britain and France hate each other. Yeah, and it, and it's kind of like I mean a lot of it is like sort of like that the public memory for like those two powers right it, it sort of like begins at like world war one 
mm-hmm. um, were like their were their allies, right? Like, I mean, there's sort of an, a, a, an acknowledgement that, like, you know, okay, well, the French, you know, helped us in the revolution against them, so I suppose they couldn't have been that friendly, right? Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of. Um, you know there's there's like that uh you know nature to it so like i i don't know it's it's kind of you know i i do wonder how it's how it's felt over there right whereas we like i mean kind of i mean at least from what i've gathered from like people's you know interpretations of the french in the united states it's it's really kind of like you know begins and ends at world war ii where like they surrender so they're forever associated with being pussies and this is the the one historical era where they they aren't right you know it's <laughs> you know they were being led by by a strong italian man they don't tell you about yeah that. they don't tell exactly. you exactly this is a question that came up in the chapo review of this movie they had the host of agent napoleon on for that one which was fun but um they were talking about like the historical reputation of Napoleon vis-a-vis France and um the UK, right? And in like Britain, he has this like really derisive reputation. And like the proto-Hitler narrative is really more common in the UK than it is here, you know? Mm-hmm. Where like he was just this mad titan who wanted to conquer all of Europe and I mean, by practice, that's what he was trying to do, right? But right. at the same time, how do you square that circle with like the somewhat progressive character of um, Bonapartism, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, it's easy to say, well, it's complicated, but you can't say that with you know the UK's somewhat um, existing reverence for like its historical empire, right? Yeah. So like they definitely have that like weird hold of like Napoleon as this regressive character, but then interestingly they brought up that like certain kinds of online conservatives want to like reclaim Napoleon for themselves. I suppose that makes sense, right? Like you know, it's uh, someone whose name isn't totally like in the historical mud, like you know, an Adolf Hitler. Um, I-, I can see why they might try to reclaim that. Yeah, because it's like, at least because yeah, I mean, cause, even even in the American context, right? They try to claim like people like Lincoln and whatnot. I mean, which like yeah, sure, the party ID lines up, but you know, certainly the ideology doesn't. And that's exactly it, right? Where it's like I think American conservatives are always trying to see what they can't and can claim for themselves. So it's like Ben Shapiro one day is you know claiming the Enlightenment. Uh, as this extension of the Judeo-Christian tradition, I don't know it, how you get that. They, I, I've noticed that that's been kind of a trend uh, in those circles in general. That there does seem to be this push that um, they do, they they think that they've like owned the Enlightenment and modernist thinking, despite the fact that like you know their religious fundamentalism is directly counter to that. Yeah, yeah, and I think like especially in like the real like religious um uh conservative angle like the like the trad mm-hmm. cat types yeah especially like a like a christopher rufo or like a matt knowles type freak you know like mm-hmm. some of them like are always hinting at like the enlightenment was a mistake and some of them yeah. like want to bring back monarchism even if they don't say it explicitly and like that's just a vibe going off of online discourse we don't need to get into it but during the coronation that seemed uh the of uh 
King Charles recently, I saw that like kind of being pushed. Like, oh, look at like this wonderful thing that like British people have that we don't. <laughs> it's like what? And it, it's, it's almost like <laughs> as Americans, didn't we decide we don't want that? Like, I, I I'm not I'm not trying to be particular. You know, I may just be a simple uh, country bumpkin, but didn't we say we don't want a royalty? Yeah, well, you know, speaking of country bumpkins, uh, conservative ideology in general is um, filled with contradictions, um, especially the way that they try to appeal to various, you know, groups and whatnot. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, I think... We can probably talk about conservatives trying to co-op things all day if we wanted to, but like, I, I this is a this is a funny one to try to claim. This is this is a funny one. Yeah, like I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, like, it, there's got to be some other like, you know, conquerors that you could attempt to reclaim that are maybe a little bit more like you know less of a uh, square peg in a round hole, like. I, I don't. I don't. I'm like. I'm, I'm. I'm trying to think of like who comes to mind. I mean, I think you'd probably have to go back like further historically, maybe. But I mean, like you maybe like one of the Russian czars. But again, I mean, like because I mean, there's like I, I think you know the modern conservative doesn't really like losers, um, right? You know, I mean, like as you know, Trump beautifully illustrated when he talked about how he, you know, he liked his his spore heroes are the ones who weren't captured, um, not you know pathetic POWs. Um, you know, I think that there is kind of that aversion to that, right? So, like, you know, where someone like Tsar Nicholas, um, obviously that's a little bit more modern than Napoleon, but like, where uh, Tsar Nicholas II used to be someone that was like, you know, like, oh, it's a, a martyr, and you know, who was killed by the communists. Um, the fact that he was kind of just a loser sort of undermines like any desire to like celebrate him, and, yeah. I, and I think that kind of Tsar Nicholas applies is to a lot weird. of people. It's the same thing, like, uh, the Romanovs and Tsar Nicholas and all that, right? It's it's interesting you bring that up, because, like, every time they bring up that, oh, they were martyred by by the by the Bolsheviks, no yeah. one brings up, like, their role in in pogroms or in, like, all manner of regressive practices in Tsarist Russia. Right, yeah. I mean, like, if anything, you know, there's some of the more egregious acts of the Bolsheviks were kind of just, you know inherited by the old from the old regime right like they it wasn't um uh you know they they certainly committed some atrocities of their own like it's you know it's kind of like you know it's just sort of a continuation of of that in a lot of ways and i think that doesn't really get acknowledged but either way right the fact that he was like you know he was killed and he lost a revolution and you know had to back out of you know world war one i mean it's it's kind of beta male behavior right no one wants to like claim a beta that that's exactly what it is. You you know, alpha status is confirmed conferred upon whoever is deemed worthy of it, and then it doesn't matter what you do. The minute they say you're not worthy of it, you are you are an instant beta. Yeah, and to be fair, and I was thinking about that too as it kind of related to this movie as well. Like when I was watching it, that like we sort of have you know like there's that like you know classic saying right of like you know, history is written by the victors. And I think that, like, the part that people don't necessarily appreciate as much with that is that, like, it also kind of by extension means that, um, you know, we sort of treat the victors as, like, inherently, like, just through their victory, they're inherently, like, just, 
right? Like they were in the right and stuff like that. And I kind of like thought about this here where it's like, you know, like to the extent that it, the movie, like it's, I don't think it leans super heavily on like the pro monarchist side or anything like that. But like, it does kind of have that suggestion, right? That like, Oh, because like, this is the coalition that ultimately wins. They were correct and stuff like that. And I think that there is sort of that, like in general, like blanket you know brush that we sort of paint uh history with that like it, it, it is like is a sort of just rule of thumb yeah and i think that's like this it's why i keep coming coming back to this topic right and it's like it just remains like one of the most prescient things i think about a lot is like history is a is a process it's an active thing mm-hmm. that's never off and it's a shame that that's not the popular consensus of history, nor is it like a thing anyone is consciously taught about history, that it's a it's an active process that when can you, be studied as such. When you uh, take history like more academically, that is the that, that is, I think, usually in my experience, the way they, they try to convey that, right? They try to get you to rethink. Yeah. Um, like when you take like college history courses, um, good ones at least try to get you to think about it more in terms of like, as you said, a process. Um, like we use like in like, you know, kind of contemporary context, we use terms like revisionist history in kind of a derisive right. manner, right? But it's not necessarily, you know, that, right? I mean, there's certainly some some efforts to like revise history in a way that's like overly flattering and essentially propaganda. But, um, you know, like normally revisionist history is, you know, the idea of, you know, revisiting these historical events and kind of you know there's new evidence that comes up sometimes right you there's this sort of process and understanding you know how things uh, happen historically like you're talking about exactly and it's like i think people underestimate how damaging it is not to be taught that at a young age yeah i think that's like one thing we fail young people with is that we don't introduce them to that idea early enough and i i don't know like if that's the conclusion we should take away from what is what was meant to be like a film review right <laughs> but but it's like it's it's the thing where it's like this big director gets on and does like a multi-million dollar project and all it is is like wax figures in a museum level of analysis yeah it's it's um it kind of goes to show that like our, our popular consensus of what history can be and what it can be understood as, you know, is, is limited by design to some extent. And I think like, I don't know, getting people to appreciate the gravity of history is something that I find is a meaningful exercise, but also like, it's just something that I regret that I wasn't allowed to be interested in until a lot later because it was always sold to me as something boring, dry, and uninteresting that's not worth your time. And then by the time I'm basically college age, it's this fascinating fucking thing. Yeah, I I agree. And I I think, you know, it's, you know, something that I think maybe worth getting into on some of the more culture war focused episodes. Right. But like, I mean that idea that we don't introduce that idea about like, you know, history is this process at a younger age that we treat it as like, these are sacrosanct facts, especially as we're seeing, you know, in places like Florida and other States where they're like really adopting this, you know, essentially the, the, like the, a propaganda version of history. Um, Yeah. and, And like, not that like there weren't already elements of like, you know, 
a tremendous biases and stuff like that that could be you know construed as propaganda in certain cases before but like you know we're getting a really really bad version of history being put out by some of this stuff right i've seen some of these like prager u videos that they force their kids to watch but the fact that we're not like you know like that you're not only being shown that but being kind of taught that like or being you know whether directly or indirectly that like history kind of has like this one version is creating a scenario where uh and, and you know it's 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 not a mystery as to why this is the case right i mean it's it's certainly useful for you know the powers that be for people to sort of have that view right that like this is your version of history and anyone suggesting otherwise is is lying right any updates to this is them trying to change the narrative in a way to make you feel bad or things like that right and it's 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 all kind of done i i think with malicious intent to you know it largely for, you know, as I said, propaganda purposes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. So with all that being said, shoot, like, I think we've really exhausted our topic here. I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly, uh, I, I actually kind of, you know, I, I didn't really, I, I kind of forgot you've mentioned Asia Napoleon before I definitely want to check out some of their episodes because I I, I do I, I do really enjoy this era and whatnot. Um and I, I you know I, I think yeah again this film didn't do it a whole lot of justice, but I, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot worth learning about. And if anything, um, you know, this is a film to enjoy with, you know, with your popcorn and then, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, delve into it more deeply. Yeah, yeah. And Age of Napoleon starts um pretty early like it it sets up the context for like pre-revolutionary france dives straight into the revolution and even like sets up like what the transitions were in like pre-napoleonic military versus when he took over and then starts with his birth right so if you're interested in like who was the man napoleon like and you don't want to sit through a, a book or you want like a a source that's a bit more accessible than a book like Asian Napoleon podcast brilliant place to start brilliant place to start we love it folks we love <laughs> it so yeah i think i don't know is there anything we missed at all uh i don't think so i think we we gave this a pretty thorough uh look um I guess what would you what would you give it star rating wise? Do we do the Ebert four star or five? I, I I always I always ask and I always forget. I think we're doing five stars. All right, what do you give it? I'm giving it three and a half. Okay, I I'd give it about um I think a two and a half. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably where I would put it. Yeah, three and a half if the movie makes you laugh, two and a half if it doesn't. I think that's fair. <laughs> Which is fine. It's variance is perfectly fine. I don't. I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect film. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I would agree. There's nothing that's perfect. There's always, uh, you know, the road not taken and all that with any uh, any major production. Yeah, like definitely. You know, if you if you didn't get a chance to see it yet, don't feel too bad. Um, if you do see it in theaters, it will be visually stunning. So it will be worth your while sure. to check out. Um, one thing I am worried about to some extent is that it's going to be released on Apple TV soon with a four hour director's cut. Oh God. 
Hey, and well, I, that's that's the opportunity to include the stuff that we said was cut, Audi. Well, the thing is, is that Ridley Scott said the cut is going to include even more about their relationship. The only thing with that is like, because to be honest, I actually do think their relationship is like interesting enough that like it could have been the basis of a movie. If like, and and here I don't think it really was the basis of the movie. I think it was, you know, there's certain elements of it that were, but I think that it like the actual relationship. Yeah. The actual relationship's a subplot. And like, as I said, you kind of go from like point a to point like E like instantly right like it, it yeah. doesn't feel like there's much of a transition and it's like he's like smitten with her then she cheats on him then he's angry and then they're both smitten with each other magically uh and i don't know it, it was just kind of weird but it like, doesn't I, make sense yeah <laughs> yeah it's like maybe if like the the director's cut like fixes that like but i don't know if i really want to sit through four hours of that probably not i'll pr- probably in bits and pieces for fun but i i don't know four hours with no intermission, that's asking a lot. Yeah, I mean, at least if it's, you know, on Apple, there's the pause button. Exactly. So you, could, you could create the intermissions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that's that maybe maybe a sacrificing the artistic intent of the movie, but... Or you can, if you're willing to just put the time aside, maybe I, maybe I should sit down for uh, Napoleon as seen by Abel Gantz. What is that? That's the 1927 silent film. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that sounds like a better use of time, anyways. Yeah, let's see. Napoleon. Few pound Abelgans. Let's see. Like we're 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 talking like deep cut style stuff. Like this is what I mean by the triple projection. Yeah. That's kind of like, creepy. Like, what is yeah, the, it does. Who's 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 the woman whose image is like superimposed? I on that think stuff? that's Josephine. I'm not sure. Huh. But you can kind of see like the inspiration for this film within it. Yeah. Anyhow, that's that's our take on Napoleon. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or close out on? Oh, I can't think of anything today. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm just glad to be back in the booth. <laughs> I'm. I'm glad to be back yeah. in the studio. I, I guess we'll, 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 I, I think the plan is to hopefully be back soon. We've got a, a couple uh, things in the mix, right? That we've been thinking about. For sure. For sure. We got a couple things we can get out for sure. So yeah, thanks for tuning in, dear listener. As always. Um, I got our social links in the description below. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode. Take care, everyone.